VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. I think if you are like me, someone who sees the evidence that there was a creator behind this incredibly awesome, complicated, and beautiful universe, that if as a scientist you get to explore some of the details of that creation and you learn something that nobody knew before, then you're getting a glimpse of God's mind. And that means that every scientific effort is also a form of worship, and the laboratory is like a cathedral in its own way. That's Francis Collins, a brilliant scientist who led the Human Genome Project and recently stepped down after 13 years as head of the world's top biomedical research facility, the National Institutes of Health. He's also something of a rarity among scientists, an outspoken evangelical Christian. Not surprisingly, our conversation was among the most fascinating I've had in over 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid. Francis, this is so good to see you again. Thank you for being on the show. Alan, it's great to talk to you. It's been a while. It has. We've had some pretty interesting discussions before about science communication, and your blog and podcasts are all over the place. I'm glad to be part of this. You've concluded that amazing, incredible run as the head of the NIH and retired to your lab, which I guess you'd been looking forward to for a long time. And almost without warning, you were called up to be the acting advisor to the president on science. Now, just a few hours ago, I learned that the permanent head is going to be confirmed soon. So what does this mean for you? Are you back to the lab again, triumphantly? (laughs) Well, I'm actually in the lab today, but I haven't been able to be here a whole lot since the president asked me to step in as the science advisor back in February. I am looking forward to uh, to the chance uh, to have more of the time uh, to be in my research lab working with an amazing team on diabetes and on a rare form of premature aging called progeria. But I'm also honored and privileged uh, to be in this role of serving as the president's science advisor, looking across a very broad landscape of scientific topics, trying to be sure we're doing everything we can uh, to advance the cause and make the world a better place. What did you feel was the most important thing you should aim the country toward with regard to science? Boy, Alan, it's hard to pick just one thing, but obviously we are still in the throes uh, of the COVID pandemic, uh, especially with the BA5 variant now that's infecting a lot of people, including as of this morning, the president of the United States. Right. And we need to learn the lessons from that uh, because this will not be the last pandemic that our world or our country faces. So pandemic preparedness has been a big focus of everybody working in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy 
policy. And we are, I think, well along the way with starting some of those efforts, still feeling a little bit short on the funding that's necessary as Congress has had a little trouble getting some of that over the finish line. But we ought to be in a place now already to identify what are the most likely pathogens for the next outbreak. And could we go ahead and start now to develop vaccines and antivirus um, agents that could actually be good treatments and not wait until the last minute? I hope that lesson has been learned. (laughs) You know, something that when I think about you, I think of the delightful set of contrasts you present to the world. You earned a PhD, an MD. You have this incredible history as a geneticist, discovering the genetic sources of diseases. And you started out not going to school until the sixth grade. That usually doesn't go together. You're an incredible administrator. You brought in the mapping the human genome, a half a billion dollars under budget in two years before you expected to. And yet you're a motorcycle riding guy with a black leather jacket. And the the one that you're really known for is a top scientist who is also an evangelical Christian and very outspoken about it. Mm -hmm. Well, well, let's get to religion a little later. But right now, let's talk about rock and roll. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You had a band at the NIH. Is that band broken up or are they waiting for you to come back or how are you going to work that? Oh, they kind of had to go on a hiatus because of COVID. We were really doing great. And 2019, I think we had four or five gigs. Uh, We played sometimes for science meetings. That was our usual (laughs) likely place to want us to show up. And I got to tell you, Alan, there's nothing like being up there, you know, the lead singer front uh, center of the stage with 1,500 people dancing in front of you when the band is really in a groove and you're hitting all those beats just right. It's like, oh, I don't want this to be over anytime soon. How did you get into that? Was that a childhood love, that music? Yeah, very much so. And partly based on my family. My father was a folk song collector in North Carolina in the late 30s, early 40s. And so he was totally into the music, uh, the traditional type. And I grew up listening to all that with a lot of the friends he had made dropping by our farmhouse uh, to play music on an evening or sometimes stay for a week because they'd run out of money. And I learned to love this as well. And I learned to play keyboards uh, in that farmhouse when I was four or five year old uh, on a pump organ that was bought in North Carolina a few decades earlier. And I just found this to be something that just grabbed onto me and it's never let go. And most of what I've done in music has been more along the lines of the sort of folk uh, traditional. I even enjoy a good bluegrass band. But rock and roll is pretty fun, too, especially if you've got some good buddies uh, with you where you can really rock the house. And you compose and write lyrics as well. I do. You know, Alan, sometimes things get pretty serious and whatever you're doing. They've certainly been serious in medical research for various reasons. And you bring a bunch of people together to work really hard on something. And then you just need an experience to lighten it up a little bit and draw people together. And writing some new lyrics to a familiar song, especially if they're a little bit silly, uh, has a way (laughs) of kind of breaking the tension. A little silly can go a long way. (laughs) You would know that, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) What led you into medicine? 
Well, it took a while to get there. <laughs> Initially, I was in love with chemistry. It was the first science that I really got into as a high school kid in a um, class taught by an amazingly charismatic teacher. And I figured, okay, I knew I wanted to do something like this. This must be it. And I stuck with chemistry through undergraduate at UVA and then went off to get a PhD in chemistry at Yale. And I kind of narrowed my horizons a little early. And then I discovered, oh, there's something happening in the chemistry of life <laughs> that's even more intriguing, DNA and RNA and how various differences in the spelling of the genome can cause outcomes that are both marvelous and sometimes terrible. And I want to be part of that. And to really fully be part of it, again, wanting to have a vision where I wasn't just dabbling, but I was fully immersed. It felt like I better go to medical school. So whatever I learn in the lab, I can try to bring to the clinic. You know, maybe I'm off base, but I, I think curiosity is so important to your life that I, I sense a, a little bit of curiosity motivating you when you had that experience with the heart patient. I think you're right. I think you're talking about when I was a medical student. Yeah. And I, at that point, had learned a lot about the human body scientifically, immersed myself in all of that, found it fascinating, and was quite convinced that a combination of that kind of physiology and understanding of genetics might really go somewhere interesting. And that's kind of where I was mapping myself. But I hadn't really thought to any significant degree about larger questions, Alan, like what is the meaning of all this anyway and why am I here? Those are like, eh, uncomfortable. And by the way, they kind of tap into pretty quickly, is there a God or is this just all a bunch of atoms and molecules? So I'd ignored those questions. If you'd asked me that day where I sat at the bedside of that heart patient, do you believe in God? I would have said, absolutely not. But then she asked me, she was having a really bad episode of chest pain. And I realized our medicine had nothing to offer her. And as she got through it, she told me that the way that she was getting through this suffering was to depend on her faith and talked very personally and very openly about that as the thing she was really depending on, basically because she knew medicine wasn't going to save her. And then she just turned to me and said, Doctor, I've told you about my beliefs what do you believe? Hmm. And suddenly I couldn't answer. Hmm. Suddenly I couldn't just say, oh, I don't believe any of this. There's no such thing as God. Because I realized I really didn't know. It was like that shining moment where somebody poses a question so simple and you realize the breadth of your ignorance on that topic is so incredibly wide that you have no right to answer anything other than, I don't know. And if you're a scientist and you say, I don't know, that kind of obligates you to do something about it. So and what did you do? Well, I decided I'd better study all of the reasons why people believe and why people don't believe so I could shore up my atheism because that's where I was and that's where I wanted to be. But I'd realized I don't have a good defense for this. I haven't spent the time to really survey it. And I found to my surprise that the evidence really tipped in the other way. I first had to admit, after a little bit of looking at this, that atheism was probably the least rational of all the choices because it's the assertion of a universal negative, and scientists really aren't supposed to do that unless you have all of the information the universe has ever possibly contributed or made available in your head. 
how could you say there can't be a God? Well, maybe there's some information you don't have yet. Yeah, it seems to me that it's very difficult to prove a negative, which leads to agnosticism, which, because if you say there's no evidence that I've come across that convinces me there is a God, then, then you're agnostic, but you know, the possibility is endless. And I stopped at agnosticism for a little bit, but it felt a little bit like a cop-out. <laughs> and then I began to notice things that, as a guy who studied science, I hadn't paid that much attention to. So questions like, why is there something instead of nothing? Well, that's, that's not one that you can answer with science. Questions about if there's a big bang and science can't really look further back than that remarkable moment, okay, what exactly was the basis for that? Nature hasn't been observed to create itself. Is there a need there for a creator that would have to be outside of space and time? And then for me, as somebody who'd studied physical chemistry and absolutely loved the mathematics of that, why do we have these beautiful, simple mathematical equations that describe the behavior of matter and energy beautifully, like Maxwell's equations for electromagnetism? Why does that work? It seems like there's a mind behind all this. And then most compellingly, and I think even Richard Dawkins will admit that this is the one that gives him pause, the fact that the universe is so fine-tuned for something interesting to happen, that we have these constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy, like the gravitational constant and the strong and weak nuclear forces and the speed of light. Alan, if those were off, any one of them, by one part in a billion or even less than that, the whole thing wouldn't work. <laughs> the Big Bang would be something that went on indefinitely with particles and nothing else, or else would come back together in a big crunch. There'd be no possibility of any idea of a, of a life form emerging. And yet everything is exactly the way it has to be for us to be here. Let me ask you, one of the objections to the idea that there must be a prime mover and that prime mover must be God one of the objections I've heard often is it's the easy way out. You say, well, it's turtles all the way down until you get to God. But does that, does that belief in a higher power that got things going and maybe even keeps them going, does that limit your desire to explore and find out how it is that there was a Big Bang, maybe you could find, figure that out. Absolutely doesn't limit it. It encourages it. It makes you want to know even more. I do think you have to come up as a scientist with some kind of model about what happened before the Big Bang. And if you create uh, a model that has some other time-limited entity, uh, some other bubbles uh, of other kinds of multiverses, and ours, that's just when ours bubbled out, you still haven't explained how anything got there, why the something was there instead of the nothing. I don't see how you solve that, what you'd call an infinite regress problem, unless there is a creative force that is not limited by space or by time, because all of our arguments are always stuck on this linear axis of time. If the creator is outside of that, then you immediately solve the problem. Now, does that bring you to God? It does for me. It might bring people to another place, but it certainly doesn't fit with the idea of nothing other than matter and energy and nature alone. We can't explain how we're here. Along those lines, uh, 
I read you say someplace that mapping the human genome was both a stunning scientific achievement and an occasion of worship. Mm-hmm. So that really answers in spades my question, does it prevent you from looking further? Apparently, you feel that the further you look, the more you're worshiping the God who made it all. I think if you are like me, someone who sees the evidence that there was a creator behind this incredibly awesome, complicated, and beautiful universe, that if, as a scientist, you get to explore some of the details of that creation and you learn something that nobody knew before, then you're getting a glimpse of God's mind. And that means that every scientific effort is also a form of worship. And the laboratory is like a cathedral in its own way. I hear people, Alan, sometimes say, oh, you know, you scientists, you you take all the awe out of things by explaining how it works. You know, you're going to tell us why the rainbow has the colors. You're going to tell us why the sky is red at sunset. I don't want to hear it because it doesn't seem as full of awe. Not true. It's even more so because it reflects this amazing intelligence and beauty of the mathematics and the biology and the physics that's behind all of this that we're beginning to glimpse. And then you just have to look at it and say, that's even more amazing. Yeah, as you said before, it's, it's a detective story. And it's even more than that. To me, it's that. And it's also poetry. It's yes. a description of the most amazing phenomena that you can imagine that you can't even imagine. Yes. But a lot of people still feel that science and faith don't go together. Stephen Jay Gould said they were non-overlapping magisteria. Uh, But you feel they overlap. I love Stephen Jay Gould, and I was friends with him before he died much too young. But I didn't buy his model at all. I think he was trying to sort of solve a problem uh, where he saw these warring parties and he basically wanted to tell them, hey, you're both right, but there's a wall between you, so just stop talking to each other. It doesn't. Well, it would be good if they'd stop knocking heads with one another. It would, and they, that hasn't happened so far. Uh, for me, as a person who is totally immersed in the scientific method to try to understand how things work. And you try to convince me of some scientific finding, you better show me your data, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about how you did the experiment. But I'm also a person who sees the mind of God behind all of this, and actually a God who's not just a deist kind of God who set the whole thing going and then decided to do something else, but a deist, a a theist God who cares about me and A lot of the reasons for that we could come to are my sense of morality and good and evil and where does that come from, which is hard to fully account for on a purely naturalistic basis. So yeah, um, I think then if I'm working in the laboratory and I'm discovering something that wasn't known before or reading a paper that somebody else did or seeing an amazing result, like I just saw today of a patient with cancer who got one of the new forms of immunotherapy and his liver cancer just melted away. I'm like in awe and I'm also in praise and I'm feeling like both my scientific and my spiritual worldviews are really having a great time here working (laughs) together to appreciate this. 
And it breaks my heart that people do see that as incompatible and conflictual and like, oh, they can never get along. That's a uniquely American view, especially in the last hundred years or so. It was not the view uh, going back a couple of centuries. Isaac Newton wrote more about faith than he did about physics (laughs) and saw no conflict between the two. When we come back from our break, Francis Collins tells me of his unexpected friendships with some of his fiercest intellectual critics and how his early experiences in the theater helped him with the challenging task of talking science with members of Congress. Hard to believe we've done more than 200 episodes of Clear and Vivid, which is over 200 reasons to support the show on Patreon.com. Here are three more. One, the proceeds from sponsors and donors support the nonprofit Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, training people around the world to be better communicators. Two, at the highest level of support, you're invited to join the monthly video chat with me and other donors. And three, if you're interested, I'll record your voicemail message. Either a plain vanilla one, Betty can't come to the phone right now, but leave your name and number, you know, like that. Or one with some snark in it. Hi, this is Alan Alda. Betty has no interest in talking on the phone right now. Probably busy listening to my podcast. But leave your name and number and it's entirely possible you'll get a call back. Just a touch of healthy indifference for your loved ones. Go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Francis Collins. I'm glad that you're happy with your faith and that it encourages your science rather than limiting it. But to me, faith, while it brings many positive things to many people, to me is a hypothesis. That's, that's about as far as I can go with it. And it's, I, I can't say that it's not connected to some, some being at the other end of your faith, but I don't have evidence that satisfies me. There's no controlled study where other possibilities are considered as the source of the, uh, the, the evidence. But do, does that bother you? I mean, I know when Richard Dawkins debated with you, it bothered him that you didn't disbelieve. <laughs> 
Richard and I just did a uh, podcast debate about a month ago. You can uh, look it up on the website called Unbelievable that Justin Brierley runs. And we had a little redo of this. And it was much more cordial this time, maybe because we're both <laughs> a little older and a little more mellow. Uh, it doesn't bother me at all uh, that you or somebody else would say it's just a hypothesis. It is a hypothesis, Alan. I, I can't prove to you that God exists. Uh, I can't prove to you uh, that from my faith, Christianity, that the, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross was a highly significant thing that means more to me than I could possibly put into a paragraph. Uh, but I can look at the hypothesis and I can look at the evidence for and against and I can get to the point, as I did at age 27, of saying this is more plausible than implausible. And at some point, one has to then make a decision to take the leap or not. And interestingly, I resisted that until I just couldn't. Hmm. It, it was compelling. It was incredibly beautiful and the way it put together all kinds of dilemmas that I otherwise was struggling with, like, who am I? Why am I always doing the thing that I know is not right instead of the thing that is right? And if there is a God out there, how could I possibly have a relationship uh, with God, given who I am? And all that sort of fell together, and I couldn't resist another day. You know, I saw an interview in which your wife was asked, what struck her most about you. And it was very touching. And she led with that you are who you appear to be, that authenticity. And I think that showed in the relationship you had with Christopher Hitchens, with whom you also debated. I, I didn't see that debate, but it, I don't know if it was a testy exchange or not. But you you got together afterwards and talked, I understand, and became friends. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, Christopher was an extremely effective debater, uh, probably one of the most uh, feared opponents for anybody who was going to get <laughs> into a conversation about faith and claim that there was some value in a spiritual perspective, because, boy, he could come up with every kind of effective argument against that. And as somebody who was the master of the one-liner and who also knew the Bible probably better than most believers, huh. he could just nail you. But you know what? I love that experience because maybe I'm back to curiosity again. I like to have a chance to expand and not shrink uh, my view of things. And there's nothing like having a really effective uh, counter view uh, to cause you to examine your own situation and see, do I really have a strong position here? What is it? Uh, the Bible says iron sharpens iron. And he had a lot of iron <laughs> uh, mm. to throw at me. But he, you know, and in a public setting, he could be incredibly devastating and incredibly rude and insulting. And he was to me the first time we met. But in a private setting, he was a lovely guy. Uh, and I would visit him in his apartment in D.C. and we would watch the sun go down while sipping wine and talking about faith or science or Thomas Jefferson or uh, whatever was on his mind, because he knew about almost every topic at a level of depth that few people do. And then he got cancer. And his life was clearly uh, in very serious jeopardy. He had stage four at diagnosis of esophageal cancer. And I helped him a bit, I think, figure out how to sift through that. Actually got his cancer analyzed in terms of reading out all the genome findings there to see if there was something that might be a really effective treatment. And I think maybe found 
an answer that bought him maybe another six months than he would have had. And I grieved when he died and I played at his funeral, but I did not convince him <laughs> of <laughs> faith, nor did he convince me of atheism, but we had a great time talking about it. And before he died, I think he called you one of the greatest living Americans. Well, that was incredibly generous for sure. It seems to me that a lot of what we're talking about, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel that a lot of what we're talking about was what Einstein came up with when asked if he believed in God. He said something to the effect that what he believed in was mystery mm. and enjoyed exploring the mystery. Yes, I do think Einstein, by the various writings, uh, came around to what I would call a deist perspective. He was inspired uh, by everything he learned and contributed to in terms of the beauty and elegance of the universe and the mathematical precision of the way in which it acts, the laws of nature that didn't have to be there, but there they were, which struck him as an intelligence uh, signal of some sort. I don't think he ever got to the point of saying that that intelligence cared about him, Albert, whereas I think that intelligence did care about him and cares about me. That's the leap from deism to theism, which is a harder one for a lot of people to make, but I do think one can also see evidence for that. Yeah, I think it's, for many of us, it's hard to understand why if the most powerful essence or being in the universe is watching over us, why do we have to work so hard on cancer? Hmm. You have to basically admit that maybe what we see uh, is just a very small part uh, of the overall picture and all of the things that we look at that seem like they're final and complete and oftentimes awful uh, might not be that way if you could stand back and look at the whole tapestry. That's probably true of any perspective. Yep. Even the scientific perspective, there's more oh, yeah. there always. Yes. In fact, that's why when you discover something new, I think, you've opened the door to 12 more doors that are locked. And that's the fun of it. Because yeah, <laughs> you're not going to run out of doors. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've also heard you say that when you talk to members of Congress— you try to come across not as someone who just wants to talk, but who wants to listen. How do you do that? Because th that's really what this podcast is about, is learning to communicate through relating. How do you do it? Do you have a technique? Uh, you know, I guess one of the things that helped me uh, in my childhood upbringing was growing up in the theater, because uh, my father was a producer and director of uh, theatrical events. My mother was a playwright. There was a... And there's still a summer house, summer theater where you had your farm, right? That's right. They have a show tonight. Uh, it'll be their 69th... What are they playing now? Uh, it's some silly comedy that I wasn't that excited That's about. Funny. I can't remember the name. Silly goes a long way. <laughs> Especially now. We are probably all looking for that. Maybe that's why they picked it. So you had this background in theater. How did that contribute to this? Well, I was shoved out on the stage uh, by the time I was four or five, and I loved that. But it was a small theater, uh, and you can see the audience, <laughs> and you can tell whether they're with you or not. 
And I learned early on that that's really important. If you're going to be connecting with people, you got to watch them. You got to know if that's working. And I think I bring that with me. I brought that with me as a teacher of medical students at Michigan uh, back before I became a federal employee. Oh my God. And because uh, <laughs> you really, uh, there are a lot of teachers that really pay no attention to whether the students are with them or not. That I just couldn't be that way. I wanted to know they were linked up with me. Well, the same works when you're sitting in front of a senator or a congressman, and you're there because they have asked you to come talk about something. Remember, as the NIH director, I could not just call up a congressman and say, I'm coming to see you. I have to mm. wait to be invited. Mm. So that meant there was usually some reason that they had something they want to talk about. So it's very straightforward then to say, you know, and I always did my homework. I always knew a lot about them. They would often tell me things about their medical background or their family's medical history, which I would never share with anybody, but it was often a way that we also found common ground. Mm. And then I'd listen carefully to what was it that was on their mind. And again, watch the body language and then try to step in with something that's happening in medical research. And it's such an exciting, amazing time right now. There was almost always something that was unknown to them that actually had a lot of connection uh, with what they were talking about that we could then engage on. And I could hear their questions and not just give them a lecture. And, you know, Alan, in 12 years, I didn't actually count. I'm sure I met more than a thousand times one-on-one -on -one, uh, with a member of Congress. And other than maybe two or three of those, and I won't tell you which members they were, uh, all of the rest really went extremely well. I, I would always walk out of there thinking, boy, that was time well spent. That's, to me, the essence of communication, what you just said. The effort to be familiar with that, to be able to do it, to truly do it, to not go in preparing to say what you have to say rather than looking for how it's going to be accepted by the other person. What's the other person's reaction going to be? Who are they? Who are you talking to? Alan, there's another thing I learned, which is in those settings, as a scientist, I would be tempted to quote statistics about a particular problem right. or get, get into some sort of very precise uh, numbers of this and numbers of that. That really was not successful. Much better to tell a story now, you have to be thoughtful about it. I mean, scientists sometimes like, oh, that sounds like an anecdote. And yes, it might be. But if you choose a story which is highly representative of the data, not a fringe story, but a story that actually carries through in a human interest way a message that the data tells you, you have a much better chance of somebody remembering that and attaching themselves to it. It took me a while to learn that. I wish we'd done a better job of that with COVID. Uh, we scientists oftentimes, I'm afraid, sort of stepped into the numbers, the percentages, and I'm not sure that that had as much sticking power as a really representative, compelling story. The COVID period has been part of this separation of the public from science itself. What have you thought over the past few years? Have you seen that divide grow? What can prevent that from going further? What can mend the rip? It's a deeply troubling situation. I won't try to sugarcoat it, Alan. I didn't see this coming, at least not at this level. I thought when those vaccines and the latter part of 2020 uh, turned out to be much better than I almost dared to hope, 95% effective and a very limited issue about safety problems. And 
I thought, we're going to be okay. I totally underestimated the way in which the communication about this would fail to convince 50 million Americans uh, to even get that first shot because there was so much other information coming at them. So, of course, a lot of the problem was all that misinformation and, frankly, disinformation uh, that was being packaged and delivered uh, through social media and sometimes cable news. And so we were up against a really tough problem. But I don't know that our science communication was fully optimized either. I was on those talk shows at CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever that one was that day. And if I look back on that, I think I was more focused on trying to put forward the, the details of the day than telling a good story or also explaining how science works. One of the things I don't think people understood is when public health experts in the thick of a crisis are telling you, here's what we think you should be doing. We're not explaining as much as we should, and that's the best we could do right now because that's the data we've got today, but it might very well change next week or next month. That's what struck me the most was the idea that many people have that science gives you the final answer. After they do a study, they know the truth for all time about every aspect of what they've studied, when that's just the beginning, always. Every, every science uh, article in the newspaper usually ends with the statement, more research needs to be done. It ought to start with that, because we, 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 as, a, as, as a member of the public, we haven't learned it. Yeah, and I don't think we did a good job of that. There was a desire on the part of the public to have something very concrete, tell me what to do. Yes, and a desire right. on the part of the public health people to then tell them what to do. <laughs> but along the way, there should have been this big fat caveat about this is the best we've got right now, but we may need to tell you something else a month from now. Don't be surprised. But the reaction was so severe yeah. that it didn't seem... It didn't seem genuine to me. It seemed like, well, I won't get into it. Well, there was a lot of other baggage packed yeah. into this, wasn't yeah. there? And some of it was political and mean-spirited. And some of it was driven by people who genuinely were trying to mislead people and shame on them. And good, honest, hardworking people struggled to try to figure out who do we believe? It wasn't just about what is truth, but who do we trust to tell us the truth? And that got fractured and frayed. And we've had, I think, a serious uh, downturn in trust of science in general as a result of this, just at the point where science had the greatest opportunity to help us. And the tragedy of that is not just, you know, an unfortunate disagreement about uh, science or philosophy. It was loss of more than 300,000 lives of people who de decided mm. not to be vaccinated because of misinformation and are now in graveyards. Well, I hope with your help it will improve. Unfortunately, we're running out of time for our conversation right now. I'd, I'd like it to go on a lot longer. But we always end our, <laughs> we our conversations with seven quick questions. Oh, my. Here we go. They're probing questions. They're not embarrassing. They're generally in a rough way about communication. First question, not, not with regard to your necessarily to your profession, although it could be, but just in, in general. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, boy. 
I wish um, I really understood how all those laws of nature fit together into one unified theory that uh, physicists have been searching for all this time. That would be awesome. We're not quite there. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? (laughs) Gently, respectfully. (laughs) Maybe by asking a question like, well, if that was actually the way that things were, how would that lead to this finding? And how would you explain Uh, that? uh, What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? (laughs) Oh, have I got a lot of those? <laughs> um, I, I well, in COVID, many of them came along. I've certainly been asked uh, whether I was part of the effort to get those microchips put into the syringes <laughs> for the vaccine. <laughs> That's a strange question. I wanted to ask you early on. My microchip is broken. Where <laughs> well, do sorry. I go? You need a booster, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, you try your best with all the body language signals you can possibly send (laughs) that it isn't working for that person. And maybe then you try to jump in when they occasionally take a small breath. But sometimes you just got to say, you know, um, I need to talk to that person over there. I'll I'll get you later on that. (laughs) I'll check in with you later. (laughs) Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Oh, boy. I've learned this from my wife, Diane, who is the master of this. And I don't think it's naturally part of my skill set. Basically, you introduce yourself and then start to ask them about themselves. Everybody wants to tell you something about themselves that's interesting. And if you get it started that way, suddenly it feels comfortable. What you don't do is to introduce yourself and then go on a monologue about who you are and what you're doing, because that's going to be deadly. Next to last question, what gives you confidence? I believe in ultimately uh, human ability to solve problems, uh, to love each other, and to make the world a better place, despite all the evidence. Uh, So that gives me confidence, and that confidence is rested upon the fact that I see us all as special creations, uh, children of God, and that somewhere down deep uh, we can actually live up to that. Okay, final question. What book changed your life? C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, written during World War II, the basics of the logical, rational approach to faith that turned me around when I was struggling about what to do with that question from my heart patient, what do you believe, doctor? C.S. Lewis got me a long way to an answer. C.S. Lewis, and what was the name of the book? Mere Christianity. Ah, yes, yes. Well, this has been such a delightful time. Every time I'm with you, it's delightful. Thank you for spending it with me. Well, thank you, Alan. Let me say it's a joy and a privilege to spend a little time with you. And thank you for everything you're doing to get the science communication topic out there in front of people so we can do a better job. Well, nobody can do a better job than you've done. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. 
you keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Francis Collins was a pioneer in identifying the genes responsible for diseases such as cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease. He led the Human Genome Project to its successful mapping of the entire human genome in 2003. He was appointed director of the National Institutes of Health in 2009, retiring at the end of 2021. Just two months later, he was appointed President Biden's acting science advisor. Among his many awards is the Presidential Medal of Freedom presented by President George W. Bush in 2007. You can explore Francis's vision of faith and science working together at the website he founded in 2009, biologos.org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with neuroscientist Charles Lim. He's combined his ability to visualize a working brain with his passion for music, especially jazz, in a search for the origins of human creativity. Whether it's athletics, whether it's cooking, whether it's comedy, whether it's rap, whether it's music, whether it's classical, whether it's jazz, I think the, there's a core universal creative substrate in the brain that allows us to do all of these things. Depending on the nature of the task and how spontaneous it is, it may phase in and out. But from my experiments, I'm convinced that one of the core attributes is the ability to turn off your brain and how quickly and how deeply you can do that. Charles Lim and why you shouldn't think too hard to be creative. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.